think about the last time you knew the way a story would end before the story even started, and yet you enjoyed hearing every word of it. If a storyteller is going to hold our attention despite letting the cat out of the bag at the very beginning, either they must be very good at their craft or the story must be something special. In today's reading from 2 Kings, we get both. Right in the opening phrase, we hear exactly how everything is going to end up. When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Never before in the stories of Israel had God taken someone up into heaven like that. There is no precedent for this, yet the narrator starts this story as if it were no big deal, as if Elijah's dramatic ascent into heaven were a foregone conclusion. But we learn pretty quickly on that the journey to reach that point is as important as the destination itself. This passage is filled with the tension between staying and going. Elijah, the prophet, will depart And Elisha, his protege, must remain behind. We know from the very beginning that that is where the story will end. But the narrator fills the story with other examples of that same tension in order to draw us into the tale. Stay here, Elijah says to his disciple, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. We aren't sure exactly why the great prophet insists on leaving his companion behind. Maybe the journey was difficult. Maybe they were likely to meet some of the king's soldiers who had been ordered to kill those prophets along the way. Or maybe Elijah simply knew that Elisha would be better off staying behind where he could do more good. We don't know why he ordered his disciple to remain behind, but there is no mistaking the younger man's refusal to obey. As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. Perhaps in those words we hear the transition of authority already beginning to take place. The junior prophet invokes the name of God, swearing an oath that prioritizes obedience to the Lord over obedience to his master. In doing so, he uses a word that carries the force of abandonment in declaring that he will never forsake his teacher. In that way, the younger prophet declares that his God-appointed duty is to stay with Elijah for as long as he can, no matter where his master leads him. As this prophetic duo make their way through central Israel, they meet loyal members of their prophetic tradition along the way, and each company of prophets provides the younger companion another reason to give up and turn back. Do you know that today the Lord will take your master away from you, they ask? When we hear that question alongside Elijah's insistence that Elisha stay behind, the prophet's question becomes another argument for giving up. 
Why follow someone whose work is already finished? They seem to be asking. Don't you know that the time has come for you to move on? But Elisha isn't interested in hearing how things will end up. He already knows how this particular journey will end, but he doesn't care. Yes, I know, he snaps at the other prophets. Be silent. With each repeated example of the master's insistence, And the prophet's questions, the narrative tension in the story builds not toward an unknown conclusion, but toward an unknown purpose. As we follow these prophets from Gilgal to Bethel and on to Jericho, we are not left wondering what will happen, but why the prophets are taking this particular route. Why go from one city to another? Why encounter these companies of prophets? Why bother with these repeated exchanges? But once Elijah and Elisha leave Jericho and head for the Jordan River, the point begins to become clear. If God is going to show up and do this dramatic thing that has never been done before, the place where that thing will happen is not in the cities where the prophets lived, but out in the wilderness where God is to be found. When they come to the Jordan River, Elijah takes off his mantle, his cloak, and he rolls it up and slaps the surface of the water. Immediately, the river is parted in two, to one side and to the other, until the two of them cross on dry ground. If that sounds familiar, It should. The narrator wants us to see this moment for what it is, a dramatic spirit-enabled exodus from the cities of Israel back into the untamed wild. As the company of prophets look on from the distance, they see these two men effectively retracing the steps of their ancestors, leaving behind the settlements of promise in the land of Canaan and journeying out into that wilderness through which God's people had been led so long ago. Throughout his ministry, Elijah had always met God out in the wilderness. It was in the wilderness where that troubler of Israel had first defined his ministry in opposition to the king and the king's authority. It was to the wilderness that Elijah had fled when he was hunted by the king, and it was there in a cave where God's still, small voice of silence spoke to the prophet, urging him not to give up. Like Moses before him, Elijah's ministry had led him out into that place where, as Walter Brueggemann described it, reliance upon the raw power of Yahweh is a necessity. And it was in that place and in that spirit that Elisha literally takes up his predecessor's mantle and embarks on his own ministry of confronting the powers of the world. Tell me what I may do for you before I am taken from you, Elijah asks his persistent companion after they'd crossed the Jordan. Please, let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha says in reply, not requesting twice his master's power, 
but a firstborn son's inheritance, a double portion reserved for the one primarily responsible for carrying on the family name. You ask a hard thing, the older prophet says, acknowledging that it wasn't up to him to determine how the spirit of the Lord would be doled out. Yet Elijah names the criterion through which that transfer would be confirmed. If you see me as I am being taken from you, it will be granted you. Here, at the end of the episode, we discover what had been true yet hidden all along that Elisha's identity as the one to follow in his master's footsteps is secured not because of his master's favor, nor by the recognition of the prophets who live throughout the land, but only through an encounter with the Lord, whose unbridled power is manifest not in the cities of Israel, but out in the wilderness. Before Elisha can do the work that he is called to do, he must have his own encounter with God's power beyond the reaches of civilization. We live in an age in which the wilds of God are shrinking. Not only because a consumerist culture fuels suburban sprawl, but also because the reach of technology has narrowed those places that are tethered to the comforts and security of civilization. As the prophet's journey beyond the Jordan reminds us, we cannot meet the untamed, unfiltered power of God until we step out beyond the places and powers that have eclipsed God's presence. Yet despite the steady shrinking of the physical wilderness, the gap between those whose security is tied to the powers of this world and those who are threatened by those powers is widening. As in the prophet's day, the futures of the poor and the rich, the destinies of the landowners and the tenant farmers, the outlooks of the stockholders and the line workers are set on divergent paths. If we are going to claim the divine mantle of leadership and pursue God's work in our own day, we must step out into that gap, into that wilderness gulf where complete reliance upon God's raw power is absolutely necessary. Only there will we find the enabling power of God's spirit. And to get there, we must leave behind our ties to the comfort and security we find in the cities and palaces and cathedrals of the world. Fortunately, there has not been a better time in decades for us to leave behind those structures that reinforce our dependence on earthly power and that eclipse God's presence among us than right now in the midst of a pandemic. When else have we needed to look for God somewhere other than the church we love? Why else would we leave behind those religious patterns that bring us such comfort? More than ever before, this is a time to search for God out in those places where the powers of this world fall short, like tent encampments and warming centers, like COVID units and unemployment lines, 
like the homes of the grief-stricken and the dwelling places of the lonely. Those are the places where complete dependence upon God's saving power is our only hope. And those are the places where we will have an encounter with the Lord. We need not assign divine causality to this disaster in order to recognize the strange opportunity provided to us by the challenges of this moment. If we come through this pandemic only to reset everything back exactly the way it was before we embarked on this wilderness journey, we will have given up before reaching the journey's end. We will have come back without receiving a double portion of God's spirit. This is our chance to follow the prophets out into the untamed wilds where God's power is on display. This is the moment for us to seek God where God is waiting to be found.